Hey, everybody. Welcome to week three of the CSF Curriculum Podcast, where we are going to be looking at Luke 15 as we explore this semester these 10 great passages of Scripture. And this is one of the most famous chapters in all the Bible, some of the most famous stories that Jesus tells. And it may be stories many of you are familiar with, many of your people in your groups are familiar with. And so one of the things that, that's been helpful for me is to hear this story in some fresh ways in recent years. I know I read Tim Keller's book, Prodigal God, a couple of years back, really helped me. I know Blake, Blake Morris is here with us. Blake's been working through this passage quite a bit over the last couple of months in preparation for helping people see this stuff. I know, Blake, you had said Tim Keller was helpful for you here too. Why so? Absolutely. Yeah. Tim Keller, when he talks about the story, it just opened it wide for me. And I love the way he talked about how Luke 15, especially this, this story about you know the return of the prodigal son, about how Jesus radically redefines the way we think about religion, the way we think about how we interact with God. And so mm-hmm. there's three major ways that he says Jesus redefines things. He says, Jesus redefines God. He redefines sin. And he redefines salvation, Hmm. the way that we view these three things. And he talks about just the uniqueness of the gospel and how how people thought so differently about this and how this story is just so radically different than what other people had thought. Well, let's unpack those. I mean, when Keller talks about those three things that helps us redefine God and, and understand things so differently, let, let's unpack that. Let's start with our understanding of God there. How, how does Keller point out and how, as you've studied this passage, how do you think it helps us understand God in a different way? Yeah, I think when Jesus was telling the story, people would have been baffled by the way that this patriarch, this father acted and Jesus is identifying the Father God with, mm-hmm. with the Father in the story. And just the gentleness, the compassion, especially the idea that this Father would go out and seek someone who was lost, someone who would have publicly shamed him. Mm-hmm. That is a huge redefinition of how we think about God that he seeks those who are, who are lost. Yeah, you know, on that, I remember my first semester in seminary and I was taking a basic Christian theology class and it was one of, I could almost have left seminary after that class, and and but I'm glad I kept going. But one of the things that the professor pointed out in that class is he says, you know, there are a number of different roles of God in scripture. There's God as judge, God as shepherd, uh, God as priest, God as friend. There's all these different mm-hmm. roles. But he said the dominant understanding of God, particularly in the New Testament, Testament. The dominant understanding of God in the New Testament is God is Father. It's not that he ceases to be any of those other things, but all of those other roles are subsumed under his role of God as Father, and not just a certain kind of Father who's, you know, because a lot of us around the ministry maybe not had the best examples, but we see a God here in this story who, uh, a Father who is very different than what uh, you might think God would would initially be as a Father. Absolutely. We see a compassionate Father who's Mm -hmm. loving and who seeks, who doesn't respond in an abrupt way or respond out of anger, but out of compassion, out of love, because he loves his kids. And that's a radical redefinition. Even what's unique also, when you think about the Lord's prayer, Hmm. that Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray, how do we start? Hmm, Our Father. Father. Yeah. Our Father. He, Jesus is inviting all of us into that type of fatherly, that good fatherly relationship with God. And that is just a radical way to think about God, especially in this context where Jesus is talking. This would have been a very different way to think about, about God. Well, how how else then? Keller, you said you mentioned three ways. So God is Father. What, what's another way that God... Yeah, so he, he redefines sin. Mm. And Tim Keller really opens this up. I think this is one of the unique things that he adds to the story. He reminds us that this is a story not just about one lost son. This is about two sons. Mm. Mm-hmm. And the main character really is the father with two sons. 
And we see two different ways of being lost. We see the most obvious one, of course, is the, is the lost son who takes his inheritance, leaves, and just on his own self-discovery. So he's, he's lost in his badness. You know, he's lost in just wanting to do his own thing and li- have wild living and, and all that stuff. But we see this other son, the older son, that maybe is a little more subtle in his, his sin and his lostness because he's lost in his goodness. Wow. That he's lost in the fact that he's trying to be so good so that he can possibly manipulate his father to, to maybe get things that he wants. And so it's just an interesting thing to think about that you can be, you can sin out of wanting to be good. Cause that's just another form of religion of trying to work our way to get God's attention, to be so good that we can somehow manipulate God and turn God, um, around to focus on us, if that makes sense. Well, happiness as we're wired, as God has made us to be, is in relationships. I mean, we've Mm -hmm. talked about this a number of different times around CSF, that we are at our life's most joyous moments are when we are rightly related with the people around us and certainly with God. And so, you know, what you see with with the younger brother and the older brother is both of them kind of want to get at their happiness, but they don't want to do it through relationship with the father. Mm. On the one, the one wants to just go out and kind of do his own thing and yeah. happiness is kind of out there. If I can just experience enough pleasures and enough wild living, then I'll find happiness. The, the older son doesn't want to do it through relationship with the father. He wants to do it through rolling up his sleeves and some hard work. If I can work hard enough, then then things will be okay and life will be good. And so, yeah, but both of those, both of those are, are sinful attitudes right. in that they separate us and that's what sin does. Sin is acid to relationships. It destroys relationships. And both of those attitudes, whether I'm not going to have a relationship with the father uh, because I'm going to work my way to uh, approval, or I'm just going to leave the father behind and go do my own thing. Both actually leave the father behind and are sinful. Right, exactly. And we see um, pride here. Mm-hmm. And the pride yeah. is, I love this kind of classical kind of definition of what pride is, that pride is self-curvature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're curved in on yourself and that affects your relationship with God because your relationship with God becomes a means to an end. So I'll do this good thing so that I can get God to maybe curve in on me, you know, to for for God to fit around my life rather than the other way around. So that's that's pretty unique. And and the the third point being on, you know, how Jesus redefines salvation. Uh Tim Keller says you need three things for for salvation. At least that's what's put forward in this passage is that we need the initiating love of the Father. Hmm. Sometimes I think we we miss that hmm. that it's the Father who is initiating the embrace. Yeah. That for both the sons he goes out you know, it uses that kind of phrasing that he goes out or with the prodigal son returning, he sees him while he's a long way off mm-hmm. and he goes out, runs towards him, wraps him up in an embrace, kisses him, puts a ring on his finger, has a party for him. Mm-hmm. That is the kind of embrace. We miss that. This is the father is the one who initiates the loving relationship. Uh, the second thing being, Tim Keller says, we need to learn to repent for something beyond just our kind of obvious sins. Mm-hmm. That um, Part of repentance and changing and coming back to God is not just repenting for those obvious things, but repenting for the reasons that you did the right thing, if that makes sense. And that gets yeah. back to kind of the older brother kind of view of, I'm going to do these good things so I can get God, so or I can get something or where I see God as a means to an end. And then the third thing being, we need to be melted by the fact that it was costly to the Father mm. to bring us back. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was costly in terms of his reputation. I mean, at multiple levels here. I mean, this this son would have when he said, "Hey, I want I want my inheritance." I mean, one, this is an insult to the father's honor, so that's right. costly. It would have been public shame, public yeah. shame, but and very publicly in that the son has to liquidate. I mean, most of the the wealth in the state wouldn't have said, "Well, hey, here's your cash, go, go spend it." It would have probably been in land, and he would have probably sold it to someone in town, liquidated a farm that may have been in their their at least a part of the farm. Deuteronomy would suggest that as a younger brother, he would probably get a third of the estate. Right. So he's taking a third of the land and he's selling it, and he's going out and you know liquidating it to. to some stranger who just had the, happened to have some cash to buy it, and then he goes out. So he's got shame there. And then I, I know as well we've talked some about the shame that, it, that he incurs with the older brother. Right. Yes. Yeah, public shame. I mean, he, they're having this party, and the older son is kind of making a scene to the point where the, the father has to leave the party and would have publicly had to leave this and go and you know deal with his older son, who is very obviously upset. So, yeah. Well, I want to come back to this story of the prodigal son, but this is, and and actually it's even interesting to call it the story of the prodigal son. We refer to it as that. The the word prodigal is not mentioned in the text at all. In fact, even Keller in his book, The Prodigal God, Mm -hmm. because the word prodigal means kind of excessive, you know, almost wasteful is is what the word prodigal means. And Keller wants us to look and say, hey, the, the one that's excessive, you know, we think of the prodigal son, he's excessive. He goes out and blows all his money in this crazy living, you know, what all the things he's doing. But what Keller really pushes it to see is that the one who's excessive, the one who's most excessive here is the father, mm-hmm. because he's extremely excessive with his love, both with the younger brother and with the older. And so, hence the name, you know, the book, The Prodigal God. And so, I, I even just want us to be careful when we come to the Bible, it's a good Bible study lesson actually in that, mm-hmm. is that when we come to Scripture, it, sometimes we can come with filters, and and those filters help us, re, they, they make us read the text in a certain way that isn't there. And so, even in inserting that, that calling this the prodigal son story can mm-hmm. sometimes maybe make us miss something because we've put up, unknowingly, we've put up a, a filter to it. But before we talk some more about that story, the prodigal the prodigal son story, but talking about the prodigal God overarching this chapter is, let's talk about those other two stories because Jesus didn't just tell one story, he told three stories. And it's interesting, I think, you know, when you when you love something and you want to convey something, I mean, your heart just, you, you just talk about it a lot. I mean, people who are around me hear lots of stories about my kids over and over again because I love them mm-hmm. and, and I love to talk about them. And so I think part of what you're seeing here, one, it's just a, a teaching device. You know, hey, let me tell you three stories. Let me tell hit this in three different ways. But part of what you're just seeing is Jesus' own excitement of going, man, I love this. This is my father's heart. This is my heart. And so he hits it multiple times. But but what else, you know, let's not jump too fast into the prodigal son mm-hmm. or, you know, as it's called story. Right. But let, let's talk about these first two stories as well. Yes. And even with just the the labeling of the the story, the the prodigal, you know, the prodigal son story. You know, there's been debate about what should it be called the, the parable of the father's love. Mm-hmm. You know, which is pretty interesting that yeah. the father really is the main character. But you're right, this is in context of three stories, which is so interesting that there's actually three stories that there's three parables, and in Hebrew culture, three was a very important number that it was mm-hmm. the number of completion, and so. Um, you see this actually through scripture, you know, where we see just what comes to my mind is Isaiah chapter six, and then also in Revelation, where the angels are singing, holy, 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 hmm. that God's not just holy, he's holy, holy, holy. Hmm. And three was an important thing. So if you wanted to really make a point in Hebrew or, you know, in Hebrew culture is you say it three times. And so I think what I, I think is on purpose that Jesus tells three stories and he just really wants to land on that story about the two sons and be like, this 
is a big, this is a picture, an image of what the father is like. But you're right, we don't want to jump past those. So we have this this first story of, you know, the the lost sheep. I, I think also what sticks out to me about these stories is that there's a similar refrain in each mm-hmm. one. And it's almost like there's a build up to that third story. And it's the idea that there's something that's lost, that's mm-hmm. valuable. Mm-hmm. And then when it is brought back and is found, there's a party. Yeah. And the idea of rejoice with me comes up multiple times in each yeah. one, that there's rejoicing that happens when something comes home that's lost. Yeah, I actually, as I was looking over this passage and studying and doing, doing my own work here and, and praying through it, and, and and we'll get to some of those prayers in a minute because this is it became very personal and, and convicting for me, but I, I came up with five pieces that are in every story. Mm. Uh, the first is that there's together, togetherness, lostness, a hunt, a find, and a celebration. Mm. And together, because the sheep are meant to be together. There's a hundred sheep supposed to be together. Right. The coins kind of are in a coin box. The the family, the older brother and younger brother and father are supposed to be together. There's in an ideal setting, these things are supposed to be together. One gets lost, one gets separated. Then there's a hunt. There's a hunt every time. Then there's a there's a finding. And then there's a celebration. So mm. I actually think there's there's five pieces that we That's see right. in, in all of these stories. Yeah, and to me, what sticks out the most, and I think what would have baffled or maybe struck people when they heard this when Jesus was speaking, is the hunt. Hmm. I think even during this time, you know, the just prevailing idea amongst Jewish leaders was that if there was a repentant sinner who wanted to come back, then they would be accepted. But the idea of going and seeking, that was a pretty radical idea. Mm-hmm. And so, at least from the commentaries and things that I've read, it shows that most most scholars say that this would have been a pretty radical idea. The idea of the hunt, seeking, uh, is is a pretty, it's a, a new thing or a different way to, to think of God. Well, yeah, we talk about yeah. spiritual seekers in our day. I mean, that's a pretty common term. I mean, there's a whole kind of movement of churches that started in the, the 80s and, and even up through today that they refer themselves as being seeker sensitive because there's so many people who are seekers. But but the real seeker, I mean, if we really want to get to it, ultimately we're, we're not seekers, not in any way like God is. The ultimate seeker is God is and, and he is seeking uh, those, you know, those those of us who are lost. Yeah. yeah. And one of my favorite quotes is from a guy named A.W. Tozer. It's a very simple quote. He just says, God is always previous. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. God, God has God has been there doing it. He's been seeking us before we ever thought to seek him. And that's that's what you find. You think you're a seeker right. until you find God. And you go, wait a minute. He was the one. He was the one seeking, seeking me. Yeah. And so that's why it's so funny when people use the phrase like, I, you know, I found Jesus or I got to find Jesus, you yeah. know. But this story tur- flips it around. That God is the one who seeks to find you. Yeah, talking about the 99 and and 100 here, the sheep, one of the tender points of this, and I think it really overlaps in a really beautiful way with the the sons, the story of the sons, is that uh, there's a real tenderness of the way that the sheep is treated. Because you know, as a, as a herdsman, he could have driven the sheep back, you know, with, with any number of tools with his, you know, his rod and his staff that he would have uh, at his disposal. But what does he do? He picks up the sheep and he puts it around his shoulders and he carries it home. There's just this immense tenderness that you see. I mean, I think of my dog, you know, if it's hurt and, you know, just carrying it, picking it up and carrying it home. But there's just this real tenderness of not, not punishing the sheep, but there's a, a real, a real gentleness. It reminds me of that passage. Mm-hmm. I think it's Galatians 6.1 that just says, you know, if anyone, if you find anyone in sin, what do you do? You restore them 
gently. Right. Yeah, just this beautiful, that beautiful touch. If you find someone in sin, don't beat the daylights <laughs> out of them, you know, restore them gently. Mm. And you see this here. Exactly. Gentleness, I think, is a theme throughout this. And even just along with that, you see, you know, this story, there are these three stories being about lots of different types of people. You know, we've got here the story about a shepherd, a story about a woman. And as we talked about with the Samaritan woman in John 4, that this was, you know, women were marginalized during this time. Um, and then also we have, you know, a, a landowning uh, patriarch with two sons. And so, I think it's interesting to think about these three stories as well and how there's gentleness towards all different types of people. And so, I think in your groups, I think as you're you're leading this, you can think about how this appeals to people from all walks of life. I just think that's an interesting point when you're mm-hmm. thinking about how does this mm-hmm. connect uh, with my story or the people that are in your group? Yeah, you see Jesus in any way he had available to him to try and try and reach out to different types of people so right. they would identify themselves. Hey, Jesus is offering, he's writing me into his story quite literally and offering me to, to come in the story. Well, let's, let's move yeah. back then to this prodigal son or the, the prodigal father or the mm-hmm. two sons, however we want to call the story. <laughs> I'm in the habit of calling it the prodigal son, but what, what else? I mean, there's so much in there. I mean, we could talk as we, you know, we're talking just in preparation for this podcast. There's so much there. We could talk, 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 talk. I mean, I've got pages of notes here in front of me, but we only have so much time. But let, let's hit a few other things about this story that could be helpful to help unpack it. Yeah, when I think about this story, um, especially the third story about the, the prodigal son, as we've been saying, um, the phrase that sticks out to me the most, and for me, I think this maybe gets to the heart of the gospel more than any other verse. Maybe that's just my own perspective, but the verse um, where it says, but while he was still a long way off mm-hmm. and just the language here is so uh, just overabundant. It just says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. So he sees him. He's been mm-hmm. looking for him, waiting for him, was filled with compassion for him, which is such striking language because he should have been so upset should have responded in anger because of the public shame that he brought the father. So he's filled with compassion for him. He runs. He doesn't just walk, which running for, you know, a landowning patriarch during this time would have been an embarrassing thing. It would have humiliated himself hmm. because he would have had to probably, you know, he's wearing a long tunic. We'll probably have to pull it up, you know, show a little leg, which might have been, you know, a little embarrassing. Yeah, yeah. But this wasn't a normal thing. Like Speak for your own legs, Blake. Exactly, Yeah. yeah. Um, this wouldn't have been a normal thing. This would have been a humiliating thing for him to do running, but he had no regard for the way people thought about him. He was focused on his son who was coming home. And it says that he ran to him. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. Mm. And just the, the gentleness, the compassion, the emotion, I think it's, you know, one thing to look at kind of the structure and think about some of the Greek words that are used here and some of that, but also it's not miss the emotion that the father was moved with compassion and was just so overjoyed that his, his child had come home. And in that, in that moment, it didn't matter what had happened. All that matters is that the father and the son were together. And I just think when we're thinking about groups, when we're thinking about this campus and just people who don't know this message, I just, I just wonder what it looks like for us to embrace people to become like the father and to embrace people who, you know, might be in a similar situation as this. 
Yeah, I remember it a really personal story. My my first dog was named Scooby Doo. I'm sure someone <laughs> very clever, this podcast, very clever name. I was five years old, so give me some grace. And Scooby Doo was out in its original, you know, 1970s here, but uh, was Scooby Doo. And I got home from school one day, and my dog was gone, mm-hmm. and I never saw my dog again. And I had a slide in my backyard, just kind of independent slide, uh, no place that or anything just slide and I would climb up to the top of that slide and I lived out in the country and I and and you could see pretty far off under a fair some fairly distant horizons mm-hmm. and I would climb up on top of that slide so that I could see a little further out and I would just stand up there and look and mm-hmm. see on the horizon just looking for movement anything like that and 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 I just you know I mean and that's just a dog mm-hmm. but but my heart was just breaking. Like I wanted that dog to come back home because of of how much love, you know, this little five-year-old little boy's heart had for that dog. And, you know, just in a very, very small analogous way, I think of like God's heart and and reaching out and wanting, wanting, yeah, wanting sons and daughters to come home and, and, uh, you know, and, and wanting to ask. And I suppose, Blake, one of the things that I have really been praying about during this this time, and as I've been reading this passage and listening to it over and over again, a great way to digest scripture is using a Bible app or something while you're walking to class. And I just listened to this chapter in the shower, uh, you know, play it on a speaker just over and over again. I mean, I'd listen to it four or five times a day sometimes just to try to, uh, just trying to get it inside mm-hmm. of me. And the thing I kept asking myself is in almost a depressing way of going, God, do I have that heart? Mm. Do I have the heart that I want to see lost people come back to you? I want to see lost sons come back. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that came up for me too. It was like, do I do I have the Father's heart for people that, you know, are lost? And and one of the things that I've learned is that, you know, it's not that I necessarily have to feel it. Like, mm. I don't have to like stir up this mm. emotion in me to be like, I have to be really pumped up and I have to be overwhelmed with emotion to go and like seek and save the lost. One of the phrases that's become, this is, I don't know if I've really shared this widely, but just a phrase I say in my own mind of, you know, I may not be feeling it, but God's always feeling it. Hmm. And so I may not have this heart all the time to, you know, seek lost people and to embrace them, but guess what? God does. Well, and, yeah. And it, go ahead. Well, well, you just see in the story that, that God can change hearts. God can change lives. And so one of the things that you see is God honors freedom and God allows us to make some choices, but, but we're not always, we're not necessarily stuck there. It may feel like we're stuck there, but God changes people over time. God has changed my heart over time. And so, you know, one of the things I, I take encouragement of is that God's saying, Hey, Right now, maybe maybe in your life, Brian, you your your heart for the lost maybe isn't as sharp as mine. In fact, I'm quite sure it's not as mm-hmm. as as doesn't beat as passionately as God's does. But that doesn't mean you always have to be like that. And mm-hmm. and I would say, you know, the same for other people. Some people may go, you know what, my heart right now, I feel like I just want to be the prodigal. I want to go do this living. Or my heart is going, man, I, I have followed God since I was seven years old and gave my life to Him, and and I feel like the older brother. And the thing I want to, want to say and point out is that you're not stuck in your role. You're not typecast. Grace changes people. Absolutely. And another thing, just along with this, when we're thinking about our groups that came to my mind, this is maybe a little unrelated to what we're talking about, but just how relatable this passage is to college ministry Mm -hmm. uh, here at CSF. And I'm just thinking, you know, uh, I had the privilege of going to Israel a couple of years ago and we went to Nazareth and right by Nazareth is about an eight hour walk to another city that was like, there's a ruin of a Greek city. 
Um, and Jesus probably would have seen this. Many people probably leaving their homes of Nazareth and going and squandering, you know, this money that maybe they had gotten from their their family, going to this Greek city and, you know, enjoy, enjoying wild living. Because we know this is a Greek city that the prodigal son has gone to because, you know, there are pigs there. And in a Jewish city, there wouldn't have been pigs because they were considered unclean. And so, the, the connection is, you know, we're on a college campus where students are coming from, you know, the houses that they grew up in. You know, they're leaving their parents, coming to this university campus. Many of them, you know, they're coming from Richmond, they're coming from Georgetown, they're coming from northern Kentucky and, you know, further out. And they're coming to this place. And a lot of them are saying, hey, mom and dad, thanks for the tuition. Um, I'm going to go to UK and guess what? I'm going to party. And I'm going to leave maybe what I've known behind and I'm going to, I'm going to live this life. And I just think this is so relate, you know, so related to the way we're doing ministry and that people are actually in this place right now and they need people that are willing to embrace them where they're at. Yeah, I think thinking about that while living, it brings up one other thing that I think we see in the passage is that freedom. You know, we use that word a lot. Hey, I come to college and I, I live, man, I'm free. I don't have mom and dad looking over me. But you see that to misuse freedom is actually to lose your freedom. I love how in Galatians 5, 13, this is how the the message translation puts it. I love how, how he hits this point so clearly. He says, it's abundantly clear that God has called you to a free life. Just make sure you don't use this freedom as an excuse to do whatever you want to do and to destroy your freedom. So, you know, if if we misuse freedom and you see this with the son, he looks like he's free, but he's really not free. I mean, he's he's living wildly, but he winds up living essentially as as, you know, a slave. He's a slave to his passions, he's a slave to the way of life he's chosen. He does not wind up with more freedom, he winds up with less freedom. And I think that's that's what God invites us into is freedom and a free life. And if we use that freedom properly, we get more freedom, but if we misuse it, we get less. Mm, yeah, and I think when you're lost, you're lost, you know. Mm-hmm. When you're lost, you don't have the freedom to not be lost. Mm. You need to be found. And that's just the beautiful part of this passage is that we have a God who seeks to save the lost, that he He brings freedom and we, we need him to come and bring freedom into our lives. Well, you know, one one last thing I'd say, and then let's, I, I want to take one last turn at trying to maybe talk about some practical application in our group. Mm-hmm. But one thing I think for a lot of people in our groups around CSF, there's certainly people who come around CSF who have not been a part of church before, but there's other people who have, and they have made some mistakes. We know a lot of Christians come to college and they go, man, I, I just, I messed it up. And, and they don't know that they can come back. And this story is very much about them. In fact, there was a very famous persecution early fourth century in, in the church, the Roman Emperor, Emperor Diocletian was had one of the worst episodes of persecution the church ever faced. And people, I mean, they were priests were giving up their faith. Bibles were being burned. I mean, all this stuff, people were being killed. And lots and lots of people left, but there were some people who did not leave, people who stayed faithful. And this passage in particular became a rallying point that the church talked about, that Luke 15, this this story of these sons became a rallying point. And you see this in, in early, early Christian texts that they saw, hey, if you have walked away from Jesus, even if you were once a follower, you can come back. You are welcome back. And this this story was such a such a huge rallying point. But uh, you know, one last thing, Blake, and then we'll we'll get out of here. But mm-hmm. what, uh, what when we talk about this, and you mentioned its relevance to the college campus, what uh, any last things that you would want to uh, you'd want to hit on about just how this uh, how this impacts our lives? Yeah, I think. Something to think about when you're leading this group, you know, at least for me, what opened up this passage to me was someone asking the question of 
who are you in the story? Hmm. And this is the beautiful thing. I think this is why Jesus taught with parables is that they're, they're narrative. They invite you to think about, you know, he's talking in front of like sinners and tax collectors and Pharisees and teachers. And what he's doing is he's telling a story so that they can start to think, who am I in this story? Mm -hmm. And it's pretty obvious who the Pharisee is and the leaders, that they're the older brothers and that these quote unquote sinners and tax collectors are, you know, considered the prodigals. Um, So I think it might be interesting to talk in your group, you know, and ask the question, um, who are you in this story? Well, and that's the great part about the stories. You have to keep coming back to it over and over again, because sometimes in life you're going to look at and go, I'm the prodigal. Other times you may read it. Like I was reading it recently and going, I am, I'm, I feel like maybe I'm a little more of the older brother, but God's always calling us to be the father. After we take that embrace in and as he works in our lives to transform us, we become the father. You know, one other question as we were talking about this, that even hit me, uh, that might be helpful for groups to ask is whose son or daughter would I rather be? Mm -hmm. Whose son or daughter would I rather be? If I'm, if I'm the son or daughter, so if the father in the story is my grandfather, whose son or daughter would I rather be? Because, you know, on the one hand, you got the, the son who's, man, experienced forgiveness, experienced grace. You know, man, that that's the kind of dad who could make a really good dad of saying, hey, when you mess up, I've experienced grace. I'm going to extend that to you and 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 teach you and shape you through that versus the older brother. And, and you know, so when we think about the trajectory of our lives and we go, man, who do I want to be? That's just one way of thinking about it. So we could keep on covering a ton of this stuff. There is so much richness in here. I hope that both through this podcast and using the book that you all can really have some great conversations in your group so that, again, the the goal isn't to learn. The goal is to become and to become followers of Jesus, to become who he made us to be. And I hope this podcast and the written curriculum helps you to do that. 